0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, we're back. Hour number two here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline for this 14th day of September. Trust you're having a great week so far. And as we continue our visit today, Dr. Jerry Buckner is in studio. He, of course, is a counselor, lecturer, expert on the cults, one of America's leading Christian apologists. He pastors... Christian Fellowship and hosts contending for the faith. Heard Saturday evenings right here on KFAX at 7 p.m. And of course, you can tune in and call into his program. So we we invite you to do that. We also invite you to make notes about the upcoming half-day seminar on this that will take place Saturday, September the 30th from 9 a.m. until 3.30 p.m. hosted by Highway International Church. That's located up in Fairfield, and you can call 415-721-1778 to get more information. That's 415-721-1778. We've been talking about the Trinity and spiritual warfare. And this is the other arena, as I mentioned before the break, Dr. Buckner, where the church largely of late seems to be sort of uh, missing in action on this, that instead of, you know, girding our loins and putting on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and, and that beautiful imagery that the Apostle Paul uses in preparing us for this battle. Now, the good news is, A lot of armies go into battle, they go into war, and they don't know what the outcome is going to be. They really don't know who at the end of the day is going to win. We got pulled into World War II in 1941, and I think it could be argued that by as late as mid-1943, we still didn't know whether or not Nazi Germany was going to continue its rule over Europe or Japan would continue its rule over all of Asia. We just didn't know who was going to win that war. For Christians, though, we've got one other resource available that you mentioned Eisenhower earlier, Douglas MacArthur, any of those great generals of World War II, they didn't have access to see into the future. But we as the body of believers do, because we have this wonderful book called God's Word, the Bible, that not only gives us a wonderful glimpse of the history of the the foundation of the earth and God's relationship with mankind, but also gives us a glimpse into the future and what the outcome is going to be. So in the end, we know who wins, but right now we seem to be failing at engaging in this war as if somehow we're afraid that, well, maybe we'll lose, so I'm going to hide underneath the bed.
2: Yes, that's uh, so true, Craig. And I think, again, it goes back to um, the doctrine thing as well as, uh, you know, being discipled and um, discerning. Because when we fall under those Ds, it will equip us in the area of spiritual warfare. Uh, again, I go around and do uh, PowerPoints, seminars, and workshops <clears throat> on the Trinity as well as the spiritual warfare and I can ask the average Christian when I do this workshop, uh, quote to me Ephesians six ten through eighteen, and most Christians don't know. They don't know, and they don't have never been taught uh, because the when it comes to spiritual warfare, if you start the day off without the armor on, you will become a doomed casualty, and it's so uh, frightening without the armor on. It can open up the door to Satan. Uh, as Jesus said, he came in John 10 and 10, the thief cometh not but to steal, kill, and destroy, uh, but I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And then Jesus said in John 8 and 44, he is a murderer. And so he's out to literally kill us. And, you know, when someone gets, if someone were to get up, I kind of give this illustration, if someone were to get up in the morning, and leave the house with no clothes on, the guys in the white jacket would come and take them to Happydale or the funny form pretty quickly. (laughs) And then they would say, this person is insane. Well, look at it on the spiritual level. If you leave, if you get up in the morning and don't put on the armor on, you are in an insane state by which Satan can manipulate you and uh, he can even kill people. I mean, that's uh, But, but Dr.
1: Buckner, let, let me interrupt, because some people listening right now say, well, wait a minute, though. Hang on, hang on. I'm not equipped for that. That's pastor's job. I, you know, I'm, I'm a believer. I'm in the pews. I love the Lord. I go to church. I pray. I tithe. But I, spiritual warfare? Oh, no, no. You've got to go to seminary for that. So <laughs> pastor should be the one doing that. Yes, and my response to that, that's
2: a really good uh, point. My response to that is that when you look at Ephesians 6, it's not to pastors. It's to all believers. It's to all saints. And that's why Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. And uh, we, we must do that. Uh, it's just like uh, the Master Charge card. It says, don't leave home without it. So once we p- put it on, then we are equipped so that we don't get whipped by the enemy. Uh, Because if we don't put it on, we become a doomed casualty. So we have three enemies. This is something for us important to understand. We have three enemies. Satan comes at us in the spiritual realm. The flesh comes at us in the inner realm. And the world comes at us in the outer realm. And there is no way that we can fight against these three foes by ourselves. And this is one of the reasons, Craig, why... The church is neutralized, sterilized, and uh, incompetent in doing the work of God, because Christian people don't understand warfare, and they don't understand the armor of God, and they don't understand even how to put on the armor. Somebody asked me, how do you put on the armor? Well, by faith and trust. It's an invisible thing, because you're dealing with demons and Satan in the invisible realm, and faith... And trust, you say, by faith and trust I put on the arm of God, because faith is even invisible. It's something that we cannot see. And it says in in Hebrews 11 and 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. So we're dealing with a world of unseen demons, and if we don't have the armor on
1: daily, we are in trouble. And And that faith and trust needs to be nurtured by immersing ourselves in God's Word, and being prayed up. Is that kind of the, the sort of the two-step process when it comes to putting on the whole armor?
2: It, it is uh, because each piece of the armor uh, lays out everything. You know, when it has, it talks about having your loins girded about with truth. So that is literally protecting you from false teaching because you got truth guiding you. And the breastplate of righteousness, and that's going to guard your heart. Because there's a lot of attacks upon our emotions and and, and that sort of thing that comes at us. And, uh, you know, and then uh, then our feet shot with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that we got peace guiding us in the midst of uh, people, Satan, trying to steal our peace every day. And then faith shot with the preparation of gospel peace. And then your faith, the shield of faith, where you have the shield of faith protecting you against the fiery darts of the wicked because he's throwing those darts. And then it says the helmet of salvation. And that is something that guards your thoughts because the enemy is trying to penetrate your thoughts. And then the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we have the Word of God, which you just mentioned, the Word of God. And then it says, and praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. So we have the Holy Spirit at work, too. So the whole armor of God is bringing protection in every aspect of our life. And that's one of the reasons why you see people so vulnerable and gullible, because if you don't have something protecting your heart, which is the breastplate, you know, this is the thing that that, uh, police, the police department, when you go into a military battle, they always have gear on to protect you because the enemy is going right at the heart. So the piece of the armor is protecting every aspect of our body. And because we are biblically illiterate in this area, We are being manipulated by the Satan in our individual lives, in our churches, in our community, and until we come to grips with this, we're going to be doomed casualties.
1: And it's amazing how so many aspects of that preparation for spiritual warfare, of that putting on of the whole armor of God daily, also takes us back full circle to what we were talking about at the very get-go of our conversation today, and that is the importance of discipleship. And studying to show yourself approved, as Paul said, and in doing so, when a more mature Christian trains a younger Christian, disciples that younger believer in prayer, in the fundamentals of the faith, in in, uh, Bible reading, and in all of the aspects of an active, engaged Christianity, when that happens, then you are prepared and equipped to be able to go into warfare and because of the protections that you have surrounded yourself with come out of Victor. Far too many Christians today, Dr. Buckter, are living such a defeated life. No wonder they don't want to share their faith with anybody else. They're so miserable, sometimes it the better they keep their mouth shut and not say anything. Otherwise, non believers say, Well, why do I want to be like you? You're sad, you're you're disappointed, you're defeated. You're negative all the time? I don't want any of that. Yes,
2: because, and that's so true, Craig, because the enemy has uh, allowed, we have allowed the enemy to not only penetrate our thoughts, we don't have a helmet uh, protecting our thoughts, penetrate our hearts, we don't have the breastplate, uh, penetrate our faith, because that's the thing that where he gets us the most, because if he can get us at our faith level, You know, that's why Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan desires a siphier's wheat, but I pray for you that your faith fell not. So if we, you know, the commanding officer, it's just like in a military, the commanding officer, when he says to do this, you must do it, or you can get out there on the battlefield and risk getting killed. Mm -hmm. So the commanding officer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul— He says, um, be strong in the Lord. Now, these are the three, there there are three A's that I kind of lay out in my PowerPoint. When he says, be strong in the Lord, that's our part. So that is appropriation and application. And then when he mentions, in the power of God, that's God's part because we've done our part and that's activation. So you have appropriation, application, and then activation. God will activate the armor when we have put it on and the Holy Spirit will give us power to deal with. So when the commanding officer, the commanding officer, now this is something really important to bring out, the commanding officer says through the apostle Paul three times in Ephesians six, ten through eighteen, take. Take, take, taking, and then there are Christians today, and you you were bringing this out a little bit about the way we are we are not living a victorious life. There are Christians today who say, "You know what? I'm praying for victory, and I say, "Wait a minute, that's not the right prayer because you've already won the victory in Christ, Christ at the cross, and in the resurrection, he already won the victory, so what Paul does in ephesians six ten through eighteen He mentions the word stand four times. He mentioned the word take three times and the words stand four times. All we got to do is stand in the victory, in the armor, and we already have victory. And, And the old saying is true. If we don't stand for something, we'll fall for anything. And the reason why so many Christians today and pastors are falling, falling with their faith, falling in churches, Falling, not witnessing, falling in the area of not being into doctrine and not being in disciple, not being uh, disciplined and discerning, is because we fail to to listen to the commanding officer who says, "Put on the whole armor of God," and we got to start standing in it because we have a hedge of protection that will guard us against every onslaught. Uh, Attack! This comes against us.
1: And let's clarify for listeners that may be new believers that when you say standing, that doesn't mean to just plant yourself there and not move. That is actually a a word that suggests that you are taking a position. Ex military people listening will get will get that what that means. Taking, in military terms, you have to go in. You've got to take the hill. You've got to take the block to take the city to advance the army forward to victory. So if you think you're just going to pray and hope that everything comes out all right, we're going to stand here and we're going to maybe the enemy will just be afraid by seeing us. No, you've got to plant your feet. You've got to take possession of the soil where you stand, and then you have to begin moving forward by taking inch by inch that enemy territory until you get the victory. So those are not passive words. Those are very active words when we talk about standing and taking, aren't they? Oh, they really are. And when, it's a beautiful way to put it.
2: And then when it says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, uh, that is taking the Word of God in that and really growing and maturing in the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to be victorious in everything we do because we can't do it on our own. So this is such a beautiful thing that the Apostle Paul has laid out because the book of Ephesians is a warfare book. It is dealing with warfare at the end of the chapter, but it's a book that's dealing with the Christian walk. As a matter of fact, I I have a PowerPoint that lays out the whole book of Ephesians. And you will find, if you were to look at each chapter, it will say, walk, walk, in every chapter. Walk, walk, walk. And then you get to the last chapter, and what the, Paul, the Apostle Paul is saying, now, now what I want you to do in closing in this, I want you to walk in the armor of God. It's a it's a warfare book, and Paul is challenging the church to start walking in this. Now, Walter Martin said this one time, and it was so eloquent. He says, if the, devil, if the devil cannot get your soul, the next thing that he's going for is the neutralization and the sterilization of your life. The next best thing to a damn soul is a neutralized and sterilized Christian who has been so neutralized by the devil that they're incapable of producing anything spiritually. And that was so profound. I love that. If he can't get your soul, the next thing he's going for is a neutralization and sterilization of your life. And we see that happening everywhere we look today. All, all around
1: us today. And so then you, as a result, have a defeated church because she's not put on the full armor of God, because she's not studied to show herself approved, because she has not been engaged in discipleship, because she doesn't understand the fundamental pillars of the faith, because she's failed to understand the very nature and character of God. And it's interesting, you see this consistent thread here, Dr. Buckner. We began the conversation almost an hour and a half ago, talking about what is the Trinity? Why the Trinity? How do we understand it? Why is it important that we understand it? And that thread that runs through the very character and nature of God himself to the importance of discipleship, discernment, and right on through in this process. It's really like boot camp in preparation of the believer who ultimately you're going to be faced with the warfare whether you like it or not. Whether you're ready for it or not, baby, it's coming. Mm -hmm. The question is, are you properly equipped to respond to it? Are you ready to stand and to take and to walk, or are you just going to stand up, put your hands up in defeatism and say, well, woe was me, and as a result, find yourself not only defeated, but ineffective? Oh,
2: yes, yeah, so true. And you know, and part of warfare, this is another perspective, part of war- warfare is this too, and I know that you can relate to this, and I can, and, and many others out there listening, is that. I oftentimes have to constantly counsel people in my church and outside the church that are Christian. They get so angry with people. I mean, the the devil comes at people and attack them. And the, the enemy, if you don't watch it, if you don't have the armor on, what he can do is deceive you into thinking that people are your enemy. So this is one of the things why Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, Ephesians 6 and 12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. If Satan can blind you, and this is why so many people get their eyes on people and not who the real enemy is. If you don't have the armor on, you're going to constantly be obsessed with what. He is doing to me, she is doing to me, and you're not fighting the real enemy. It's kind of like in Acts chapter 16 when the Apostle Paul was dealing with a young girl who had the spirit of divination, and she was disrupting the prayer meeting. And the Apostle Paul, he looks at the spirit behind the girl, and he says he commanded the spirit to be gone, and the spirit was gone within an hour. Because he was so mature that he had to focus on who the real enemy is. In spiritual warfare, if you are ignorant, biblically illiterate, your eyes are going to be on what people are doing to you on the job, in your family, in the community, but you must see that people are not our enemy. It's the principalities, powers, and rules of darkness, and that's a, that's a hard lesson, Craig, for a lot of people to learn.
1: You are going to be talking about these issues in far more depth than we've been able to address on today's program. And that'll be taking place for listeners Saturday, September the thirtieth, from nine A.M. until three thirty PM at Highway International Church. That's at thirteen nineteen West Texas Street in Fairfield. And you can contact four one five Seven two one seventeen seventy eight for more information. That's 415 In a minute or less, Dr. Buckner, give us a bit of a, a thumbnail sketch of what exactly you'll be presenting and why you think it's important for believers from throughout the Bay Area to come and enjoy this day-long teaching. Yes, uh, thank you so much. Uh, what
2: I'm going to be uh, attempting to do in the Holy Spirit is to equip saints because I want to equip saints in the area of doctrine. That's what we're going to be dealing with when we talk about the Trinity. And once you are equipped in that area, you will be discipled in that area, and then you'll also be discerning. And when you get discipled and in these areas, doctrinally sound and discerning— it will help you also in the same area with spiritual gifts and spiritual uh, discernment and spiritual warfare. Because spiritual gifts fall into spiritual warfare because once you get involved with the armor of God and you put on the armor of God, what's going to happen is you're going to get involved with what god wants you to do and so spiritual warfare will lead you right into spiritual gifts because you will get involved with the work of the church and you will fall right in that category of that third person i'm going to make things happen i'm not just going to watch it i'm not not just observe i'm not going to care if things happen i'm going to make things happen and that's what i want to try to motivate people to do is to do exactly what you were saying at the beginning of the program to be that salt and light of the world.
1: If at the end of our conversation today, you are feeling confused. There are aspects of Scripture that you don't fully understand. There are certain doctrines that you've heard about, but never really fully were able to um, grasp or or even share with anybody else. Maybe you're a believer who has followed Christ for weeks, a month, a lifetime, and yet you're going around in a sense of being defeated all the time, and you feel as if you're just barely holding on to life, then this special half-day seminar is for you. A look at the Trinity and spiritual warfare. Two major areas that the churches have not been fully equipped in. Dr. Buckner is going to make sure that when you walk away, you are not only capable of putting on that full armor of God and engaging as a victor in that spiritual warfare, but a deeper understanding of the absolute fundamentals of the faith, so that when those questions come, and they will, you will be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Saturday, September 30th, 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. at Highway International Church. 1319 West Texas Street in Fairfield. Details again at 415-721-1778. Dr. Buckner will no doubt be talking more about this on his program, Contending for the Faith. That's Saturday evenings at 7 p.m. right here on KFAX. If you've been blessed by today's conversation with Dr. Buckner, you'd like to hear it again, review it, share it with a friend, you can get it. It's absolutely available to you through our Lifeline podcast. Just go to kfax.com and you'll find a high school picture of me or something heavily airbrushed, I don't know, that that you can click on that. And that will take you to the podcast link uh, when the show is over tonight, Uh, about 7.15-ish, is that about right, Jarrell? Yeah, he says, I don't know. He's shaking his, his shoulders. He's the one who puts it up. Podcast to be available later on tonight about 7.15. You can check that out at kfax.com. Check Dr. Buckner out. Saturday evenings contending for the faith, 7 p.m. right here on KFAX. And our thanks to... Dr. Jerry Buckner for being with us tonight. Always a a privilege. All right. 6.32. Going to take a timeout. Come back with more of Lifeline right now, though. Let's get a look at traffic for you. Michael Bennett's got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael?
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: You know, if you think about it, I think we can all agree that we live in a fallen, sin-tarnished world, replete with all the effects that that has had on... Man's a fallen condition, one by the way of our own doing, uh, that of course, uh, that impact on our relationships, first between mankind and his creator, second between mankind and his neighbor. Now, if the power of the gospel to forgive and restore on the vertical plane has the effect that it has in restoring, in reconciling our relationship with God that reconciliation between creator and creation. Should not that same restorative power take place in relationships extending across the horizontal plane? Let's talk about that. Lisa Sharon Harper joins us. She's chief church engagement officer with Sojourners, the author of a new book called The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Lisa, great to have you on the program.
3: Thanks so much, Greg. It's great to be here.
1: This is a point that perhaps all of us need to be pondering. Uh, We sometimes want to limit God in our thinking, in seeing the gospel as the ability to be forgiven and reconciled and walk in restored relationship between creation and creator. And while all of that is true and all of that is predominant and, and critical and first and foremost, the story really of reconciliation behind the power of the gospel doesn't end there, does it?
3: Well, you're exactly right. I mean, I think for myself, I, I, was, I became a Christian and walked down the aisle. I like to say I jumped the broom with Jesus in 1983, August 21st of 1983. Actually, my birthday with Jesus is coming up pretty soon, quite. A,
1: it sure <laughs> is, isn't much,
3: it? I almost forgot that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I came to faith, and I was told pretty quickly, you know, that this is, this is really about my relationship with God, and that's it. And I took a journey just about 13 years ago um, called the Pilgrimage for Reconciliation, and on that pilgrimage we went across 10 states in the, in the south, the northern south and the deep south, asking the question the whole way as we retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the African experience in, in the, um, on this land from slavery through civil rights. We were asking, what does the Gospel have to say to this? And I had to really face a hard truth when I got to the end. I, Realize that if I were to share my understanding of the gospel with my ancestors, it wouldn't make them jump for joy. I don't think they would have received it as good news. My ancestors who walked the trail of tears, who, according to family oral tradition, and who slaved in South Carolina, if I went up to them and I said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but you are sinful and therefore separated from God, all you need to do is pray this prayer, because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, and then you'll get to go to heaven. Would that make them jump up and down? I had to really admit the reality of no, it would not. And so that's what propelled me on a 13-year journey, really, in Genesis, the book of Genesis, and then all the way through the Scripture, to find what is, how does Jesus actually communicate the gospel. Here, of course, I think
1: at the, at the end of the day, that, that sense of realization, that quickening of man's separation from God and sin and the need for um, uh, spilled blood for, for forgiveness and reconciliation is something that we, while we can explain it, it really can only be quickened to one's heart through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. A- and yet oftentimes, I think we as the church sort of Leave it there it 's sort of the one and done, and once you've you 've accomplished that, uh, meaning that you've you 've made that surrender you 've asked for forgiveness you 've given your life over to God, God is therefore through the power of the work of christ's sacrifice on the cross, forgiven us and, and that reconciliation process begins and and that 's wonderful and beautiful and and all part of god 's design to be sure, but God wants so much more for us doesn 't he, and that the notion of his creation living in harmony together was certainly a part of the original plan until mankind managed to mess things up there in the Garden of Eden. But that's but right. God wanted for us to walk in harmony. Disunity and the turmoil that we're living in today, while certainly as a end product of man's fallen condition, is not God's ideal for us.
3: Well, that that's exactly right. And actually, I have to say, this was really critical in my research, was what I found was that at the end of Genesis 1, when God looks around at creation and says, this is very good, that that word good, tov, is really kind of a clincher because um, it, it, when, you, when you open up that word, you begin to open up the text. That word, tov, is not necessarily referring to the things themselves. It, it's not necessarily saying God is saying, ooh, that's a good son I just made, or ooh, that's a really great platypus, or that's a great human being. No, instead what it's saying Goodness, according to the Hebrews, existed between things. But our understanding of perfection, which is really a Greek concept, exists in the thing. So when we think of what perfection as God would, um, would, would have it, perfection as we've been taught through the Greeks actually is about us becoming perfect or God's creation being perfect and they're you know, and then defiled. But actually the way the Hebrews thought of it was actually that the relationships were perfect. There was an overflowing, forceful, vehement goodness in the relationship between humanity and God. And also in the relationship between men and women and humanity and the rest of creation. And all of God's creation and the systems that govern us, that the way things worked, there was only blessing not cursing in the beginning. So when we look at what would God have for us now, what does it look like to be redeemed? It's not only about our relationship with God, though that is absolutely there, but the reality is is that when our relationship with God is well, then we live in a web of relationships that then become well as well. So God... Um, looks at perfection or very goodness and says, if it's going to be very good, it has to be very good for all, not just some.
1: So do we shortchange God? Do we sell him short in the sense that we tend to, and while this might seem to be sort of unique to the um, uh, evangelical uh, Protestant believer, I think there's plenty of this... uh, Um, responsibility to go around uh, no matter what your particular uh, persuasion might be within uh, the the, the large arch of Christendom. But do we sell God short by simply and singularly focusing on the power of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross to bring about forgiveness and reconciliation only on the vertical plane and somehow act as if uh, that same power, the ability to forgive and, and experience reconciliation um, and renewed right relationship is somehow not possible or we shouldn't bother with, ourse- with uh, doing or looking at that on the, on the horizontal plane?
3: Well, you know, that's a great question. I would actually say that the way that we sell ourselves short is by lifting Jesus outside of his context and outside of the context of the whole rest of the Scripture Because Jesus comes to us, was born into a long story, a story written by many authors that spans millennia and goes beyond him as well as, you know, through the cross and the resurrection and the first church and the teachings of Paul. And so when we take Jesus outside of his own context, meaning he was born in the context of a colonized, imperialized nation, the Jews, in the context of the Roman Empire, just a few years before his birth, the Roman Empire had um, squashed a possible insurrection in Galilee, where there were 2,000 people cru- crucified at one in one day, crucified, 500 crucified after that, every single day by another general who came through. The soldiers got so bored in their crucifixions that they began to place the bodies in different positions to humor themselves. That was the context that Jesus was born into. And so when when Mary um, sings in Magnificat, when Mary sings that the the low will be brought high and the high will be brought down low, and when Jesus says in Luke 4, I have come and I've been anointed to preach good news Not to the middle class, not to those who have, but actually to the poor, to the oppressed. There were actually poor people in that room. There were actually oppressed. The whole context was a, a context of oppressed people. So I think that that's one of the things that we do ourselves a disservice. We don't realize the ethical, the here and now implications of the gospel, of the scripture, when we lift Jesus outside of his context.
1: Let's pause on that point. We'll come back to more of our conversation after a brief update on traffic. If you've tuned in and been late, shame on you. No, if you've tuned in a bit late, visiting today with Lisa Sharon Harper, author of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. I think today's some conversation to help better understand how God would have us look at these questions, look at these problems, and what kind of an answer that the gospel can bring to them in terms of realizing not just uh, God's passion for reconciliation unto us, but then to see that same reconciliation play out on the horizontal between his creation as well. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, back to our conversation. Lisa Sharon Harper with us. The very good gospel, how everything wrong can be made right. Uh, Sharon, you've got a lot of expertise in this arena. Uh, Listeners may not know that one time you served as a ministry director of a racial reconciliation uh, aspect of a ministry in greater Los Angeles. And and you've touched on a little bit of that um, in our conversation today. But I have to wonder... There seems to be a big distinction between what we're seeing happening in our country today, uh, the movement afoot to try and and get it addressed at, at multiple layers, and the movement that we saw leading the charge, so to speak, back in the 50s and 60s, and that was the church was absolutely forefront. Everybody thinks of or maybe has learned in school about Dr. Martin Luther King. They forget that he is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and that it was the church that was largely the spearhead of that movement that eventually brought about things like the end of Jim Crow laws down in the southern states and the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. I'm just wondering if in this current battle enjoined, as we talk about uh, police departments, what's happening uh, with the minority communities and whatnot in relationship to uh, community policing, if if maybe the one thing that seems to be absent from the forefront of this, and that is the church.
3: Well, let me just say the church is not absent. The church, there are many people actually who are deeply, deeply committed leaders in the church who are very much uh, pastoring and chaplaining the movement right now. But let's take a step back and I just want to share how all of this is all connected. Um, And it's funny because I kind of have to go back to to the Roman times, to to Plato. Plato was the first person in Western civilization that I could find that actually said the word race and said it um, in terms of defining how race would operate within the context of a society. When he wrote The Republic in three sixty. B.C. and in the Republic, three three sixty B.C., what he said was, different humans are made of different races, and those races are determined by the metals that the human is made out of. There are gold people, silver people, copper and iron people. Each of those different sets of people actually serve the the Republic in a different way. So then, flash forward to about fourteen fifty three A.D., and you get the Pope at that point. Um, putting forward the doctrine of discovery. So race, we know, um, uh, according to Plato, was supposed to define how society worked, how you structure society at what its most basic core. Then the Pope actually decides that If, so, uh, an explorer comes to him and says, yo, 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 Pope, you know, I'm going to go exploring, and I need your blessing, and the Pope says, I got, you got my blessing, but even one up you, if you come across some land that doesn't have a lot of concrete and doesn't have a lot of stone, go ahead and claim it for the kingdom, go ahead and claim it for the throne, because that means they're not civilized, and that means they don't have a right to actually exercise dominion on that land, so... Where we get there, so what that does is it starts to create a bifurcation in those who are fully made in the image of God and those who are not. And that's the beginning of, of the religious um, uh, uh, a nod to the construct of race. Then throughout American history, you well, first you have Linnaeus, the botanist, who puts together a, a literal taxonomy of human value with white Europeans on the, on the top, and then uh, Asians, and then um, red, he called them red, um, Americanus, the Native Americans, and then black um, Africanists on the bottom. And that is the, that's when we started to see different races um, in different ways. And then we started to codify those races into different stations of American society around the 1660s, 1680s, all the way up to the three-fifths Compromise that said, legally speaking, black people are only three-fifths of a human being. Then in 1790, we declared with the Immigration Act of 1790 that only white people would be able to exercise dominion in America, and that's when we said they would be the only ones who could become naturalized citizens. So from that point forward, we have had a struggle in America on this land of people who are oppressed, struggling to have the full image of God, the full call, the full capacity that God created with them with to exercise dominion, realized and protected by law. That was the struggle of the civil rights movement.
1: And, of course, the irony is you read the Declaration of Independence and that preamble.
3: Right. Right.
1: codifies that we hold these truths to be self-evident. And it's interesting that it doesn't say we we have determined, we have established, we have decided. No, it says we hold. That gives right. credence to the notion that these truths are not truths that we created ourselves but rather we're acknowledging have been established by some other entity and certainly from a biblical perspective I think we would say that that comes from God that's and yet
3: exactly right. even
1: from then we have managed to you know make the make the bold pronouncement and statement and then run in the opposite direction ever since
3: Yes that's exactly right and so what you get is you get the civil war where people literally had to die and bleed so that some could actually have in the image of God in them realized and cultivated and protected. And then you get Jim Crow that pushed that back, and then you get the Civil Rights Movement that, that again fought to have the image of God protected, realized, and cultivated in, in the same people and others who were then being oppressed. Now, the, the difference between the Civil Rights Movement and the Black Lives Matter movement or the current movement for the black of black struggle is that the Civil Rights Movement was fighting specifically a very specific thing called segregation in the South. And that very specific thing, it hit the entire cross-section of the black community. I mean, it hit Grandma, it hit Bebe, it hit, it hit Uncle Joe, everybody. And what's the best institution, then, to address something that hits across the entire cross-section of society? It is the church. But the thing is, today, the people who were experiencing the brunt the, the sharpest point of the, of the spear in terms of um, today's uh, uh, injustice with regard to mass incarceration and police brutality, the people who are experiencing it the most are the young people. They're the folks in the streets, and they're not churched. And so, of course, the movement would rise up from that space. And, of course, they would lead it because they understand the injustice the most because they're the ones experiencing it. So it's really the job. It's the role of the church to then come alongside, to add the moral heft of our moral authority, and to stand with them and to say, yes, we are only calling on the image of God to be fully honored in every single human being, including Michael Brown, including Tamir Rice, including Eric Garner, including uh, Philando Castile, including Alton Sterling, and the list goes on.
1: You know, the sad thing is that you look at the impact uh, of illicit drug use in America and, and all the crime and everything that attends to that and the destruction of marriages and lives and relationships and yet as you point out the impact—it's kind of a twofold one. It's sort of a, a, a double whammy. In that, if you are doing cocaine in its powdered form, you're likely right. somebody who has a bank an, a bank account or a contact list strong enough that you're going to be able to get out of it. You're going to have slap on the wrist. The judge is going to say, "Okay, 90 days probation," and uh, write a big check to some foundation, and and uh, we'll we'll consider it one and done. And yet, if you are in a minority class that doesn't use the powdered form, but uses the crack cocaine form. Oh, all of a sudden now you got to do 90 years in jail.
3: That's exactly right. And I mean and more than that. We've actually now it's actually been proven that when Nixon declared the war on drugs back in 19 in the early 1970s I believe it was 1972, he said we're going to do a war on drugs. Well, now we actually have him on tape saying that this was actually that that was a dog whistle. That was buzzword. That was a way post civil rights act to control and confine black black communities, because if they really were going to have a war on drugs, then they would have actually gone down into the South, and they would have they would have focused on, on on southern women, because southern women actually had the highest rates of drug abuse all the way from antebellum, the antebellum South up to up to present, because of the way that they had to suffer through the powerlessness that they experienced watching their husbands and, and their brothers go and, um, and, well, let's just say it, and, and rape their quote-unquote property, black women and men, quite honestly, um, on, on slave plantations. And so those women anesthetized themselves by, by drugging themselves. But, of course, that's not where we focused. Instead, they focused policing on black communities, and whenever you focus policing anywhere, that's where that's going to be the bulk of who you get. Well, even
1: we see the the impact of things like uh, Johnson's Great Society that created a welfare state that's that's managed to have the same negative impact. That while on the surface, oh, it sounds great we got a we got a war on poverty and we got a war on drugs, and they don't realize in every war there are casualties and there's also friendly fire that ends up taking out the wrong people, the very people that you're supposed to be protecting and supposed to be on the friendly side end up becoming victims as well. A fascinating read, and I sure appreciate the time, Lisa, from you to uh, share with us some of your thoughts and insights. And again, more found inside the pages of The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, newly released by Multnomah Press. And again, you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. Our thanks to Lisa Sharon Harper for being with us on this segment of Lifeline.